obesity, sexual health, diabetes, supporting men's health and patient care, building knowledge in men's health communities. Welcome back to the Men's Health Podcast as we are joined by another leader in the field of men's health and we're talking hypogonadism, a condition also known as low testosterone. Hypogonadism is typically treated with testosterone replacement therapy and many often focus on the benefits on sexual function, libido and energy and mood. But the benefits of testosterone treatment can extend to other health measures too, such as improving bone health or improving markers of anemia in men with hypogonadism. So joining us today is Dr. Richard Quinton, a leading endocrinologist and researcher at Newcastle University. And we're talking hypogonadism and the effects of testosterone replacement therapy on bone health and markers of anemia. Sure, yes. So my name's uh, Richard Quinton. I'm a consultant endocrinologist, hormone doctor at Newcastle Hospitals, Royal Victoria Infirmary. And I'm a senior lecturer in endocrinology at Newcastle University. It's always quite interesting to understand that the motivations or reasons for getting into the field of, of endocrinology in the first place. Um, so, so what made you interested in, in studying and, and pursuing the career you have? Now, you know, you give me a long time to prepare for this question. And you know what? I just can't remember. But I think the most logical thing I can tell you is why I'm still interested in it. As you know, I, it's been a long time, quite why I started, hard to remember, why I'm still interested. So this field, it just covers so much. And just imagine how fascinating it is. You make a chemical transmitter in one part of the body and it circulates around and has dramatic effects in other parts of the body. And let's also think about hormone applications. So we just come through the COVID uh, pandemic. We have at least, uh, not, not in China. And we know that one of the absolute game changers wasn't any of the expensive antiviral drugs which were trialed and actually a lot were even prescribed. They made minimal difference. The absolute game changer in the treatment of COVID-19 was hormones, glucocorticoid steroids, prednisolone, dexamethasone. It had a dramatic effect uh, on mortality. And just to stress how, and also there, there are more things we're discovering all the time. So who would have thought that the three main hormones that really regulate your bone marrow making red blood cells who would have thought that those hormones would be from the testis, testosterone, from the kidney, erythropoietin, or from the liver, hepcidin? I mean, quite why liver, kidney, and, and testis should, should be, but these are the main hormones that regulate how your bone marrow functions. And then thinking about uh, what we learned about uh, metabolism and reproduction and how you, you link them. So we know that organs that used to be considered inactive, like gut, or fat tissue are actually hormonally really active. And so if you look at one of the main problems now, obesity, we know that some weight loss surgeries result in pretty sustained weight loss, others result in weight loss, and then you put it back on again. And the key thing seems to be that the weight loss surgery that results in the most profound changes in gut hormones, that's the surgery which has the most sustained effect um, on keeping your body weight down. Similarly, leptin, who would have thought that, uh, that fat cells would be hormonally active? And yet leptin is this crucial hormone made by fat cells, the fat controller. Without leptin, your entire reproductive axis shuts down. And we see that most obviously um, in um, female athletes or with anorexia, but increasingly even in, uh, in male athletes, that you know, when you drop your fat mass per a critical amount, your whole hormone axis uh, shuts down. And by contrast, you have... Uh, so, but leptin is also involved in appetite control 
And so you have the uh, paradoxical situation of people with very, very rare leptin, the gene mutations, who have this uncontrollable appetite and obesity, and yet the reproductive axis will not function. So yeah, I can't re- tell you why I got into it in the first place, but I can certainly tell you why I'm still excited to be in it and why it keeps on getting more and more exciting. So one particularly, I guess, well-known hormone in, in the general public is testosterone strongly for a long time being associated with masculinity and and masculine traits, as well as a throwaway word used in the fitness industry as well. But for those who don't understand, because it's probably fair to say that testosterone is a very well-known hormone, but not a very well-understood hormone. So for those who don't understand, could you explain what testosterone actually is? So testosterone is the predominant male hormone secreted by the testes. There are also small amounts secreted by the adrenal gland in both sexes, and actually very small amounts secreted by the the female ovaries. So it's actually present in both men and women, just that men have a lot more testosterone. Testosterone production in boys actually actually starts in the womb. Testosterone kicks off around about seven weeks gestation, and it's that testosterone action that determines whether you're externally male. If you, for instance, have a condition where you lack the testosterone receptor. Doesn't matter that you have testes, doesn't matter that you're making lots of testosterone, you will be born looking externally female. And then testosterone production continues for around six months after birth. And that's why if you change nappies on little boys, you may find they have, they have like little stiffies in the morning. That's the testosterone talking. And actually at that point, the testosterone levels may be even be higher than their shattered sleepless dads at that point. The axis then quietens down uh, during childhood and then begins to reactivate uh, during puberty. And it determines completion of male secondary sexual characteristics, and plus many other things, acquisition of bone density, red cell count, muscle bulk, effects on uh, brain. So is it fair to say that testosterone is, is poorly understood uh, within the general public? I think it's fair to say, and actually, I wouldn't disagree with the general public. Uh, actually, in the medical field, what's known about uh, testosterone uh, is, is often remarkably little, and, and some of it's really misleading. So for instance, there's the perception of testosterone as being this kind of like hormone of aggression. And actually, I just don't know where that's come from. Because actually, if you look at the medical literature, there isn't anything. And the best study I saw, and I mean, the best studies are always those that pull in people from different fields. But this was a study that pulled in people from the world of finance, game theory, endocrinologists, psychologists. And it was looking at the effect of testosterone on simulated trading behavior. So imagine the Chicago Futures Exchange, these guys in blazers shouting, buy, 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 sell, sell, sell. And people talk about those environments as being, I don't know, infused with testosterone. But actually the reality is more interesting. So if you look at traders, start off with a high testosterone level, or those whose levels rise during trading, or those who are given a shot of exogenous testosterone just prior to trading, the effect's very similar. Their pattern of trading is viewed through rose-tinted spectacles. So in this kind of futures trading, you're really imagining how things might be in the future. And what testosterone does is it makes you more optimistic about what the future's going to be like, or maybe over-optimistic. And that may be perceived as, well, you're making riskier bids. But that's not because testosterone is, is making you more of a risk taker directly. Testosterone is making you more positive about the future. 
And so you mentioned there that testosterone isn't just misunderstood amongst the general public, but also healthcare professionals as well. Does that interfere or or impact treatment decision making by healthcare professionals for testosterone related issues, but also uh, treatment uptake in in members of the public as well? Yes, 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 absolutely. I mean, there's certainly a sense amongst um, often elderly care physicians that actually, you know, they will frequently ha- they they will see more hypogonadal men with or without realizing it than almost any other form of, of doctor. Uh, but it, when it is diagnosed, I think they're sometimes worried that uh, giving an older man testosterone, he's going to set fire to the old folks' home. Um, so, whereas actually, if anything, um, uh, testosterone is associated with, if you're deficient, with like calmer and more relaxed uh, behavior. I mean, you can imagine if you took myself for an elderly care physician and uh, you castrated us, I promise you, we'd be very grumpy, very grumpy, and we'd be a lot less grumpy if you gave us testosterone. But yes, I don't know where this, you know, received wisdom um, or old wives' tale comes from, but it's certainly out there. And it's something that's certainly worth um, trying to push back against. And as for the patients, if they perceive the only function of testosterone is sexual function, and actually, you know, I'm 80 and I'm in a care home, uh, why should I bother? Answer, well, because actually you've got osteoporosis, you've got muscle wasting, you've got you're anemic. So actually, in a sense, we're not, if it restores your sexual function and you have, and you have the opportunity, fantastic. But actually, that's not that main priority while, we, while we're recommending treatment. Testosterone has long been a misunderstood hormone. For the most part, this can be down to the grey lines dividing testosterone with anabolic steroid use. First synthesised in Germany in 1935, anabolic steroids were initially used medically to treat depression. Steroids are androgen hormones, a group of hormones including testosterone, that regulate the development and maintenance of male characteristics. They are also well-established muscle and strength-building compounds. They were introduced to professionals first in 1954, when Russian weightlifters were given testosterone for the Olympics. And since then, they've been commonplace in bodybuilding and were used by some of the biggest names in the sport, including Arnold Schwarzenegger. Not so Arnold Schwarzenegger. Steroids are taken uh, eight or nine, ten weeks before a competition. It's not a healthy thing to do, but uh, it, it's been used. Did you, did you take them? I take them. I took them, yeah, up until the competition, uh, eight or nine weeks before a competition. And uh, it was something that everybody had to do in order to get an equal chance to, uh, you know, to compete. Anabolic steroids should not be confused with medically supervised testosterone use, as steroids can be synthetic, and not only are many anabolic steroids very potent and sourced from underground laboratories with questionable safety profiles, but they are also typically taken in doses that are 10 to 100 times the natural production or conventional doses used in testosterone therapy. What are you seeking when you take steroids? Well, what uh, the effect it should have is that it makes you... Uh, gain more weight and that you get more muscularity and you get uh, it works a little bit also in your mind you know it, it lifts you up a little bit and you have more energy to train and so on. Steroid use in bodybuilding and strength lifting have largely contributed to the stereotypes associated with testosterone. There is good evidence that anabolic steroids increase self-reported aggression however the effect sizes are fairly small but the totality of evidence suggests that testosterone treatment does not increase aggression. When you receive a testosterone blood test, you'll typically see different measures of testosterone. This could be free or bioavailable or protein, also known as albumin-bound testosterone. And this can seem quite confusing. So how can we explain the differences between these different testosterone measures? Yes. Uh, So 
the concept is that a lot of hormones of the circulation are protein bound and that it's only the the free or more or more bioavailable portion which is biologically active now for thyroid hormones it's very simple it's relatively simple for a lab to measure free thyroid hormones and that's what that's what's measured now whereas when i started off it was mainly total thyroxine that was measured and that was less helpful for instance if one was pregnant or on the contraceptive pill things that increase protein binding with testosterone it's extremely difficult technically to directly measure free testosterone and this is the only something that really can be done by very specialist research labs it's not something you can that can be rolled out easily in respect of um, of a general service laboratory now so testosterone is bound about a tiny amount is free about 2% and that's thought to be the most biologically active then around 40% is bound more loosely to albumin and so if you combine albumin bound testosterone and free testosterone that's called kind of bioavailable and uh, and then about 6% is bound more tightly to sex hormone binding globulin uh, and that is relatively unavailable for biological actions and certain conditions can have fairly profound effects on sex hormone binding globulin so if you are anticonvulsant treatment that could put your level up through the roof other conditions for instance such as obesity obesity tends to make you more resistant to the actions of insulin the hormone insulin produced by the pancreas uh, insulin in turn levels have to go high in order to uh, stop you having diabetes we make it eventually but those high insulin levels act on the liver to shut down production of sex hormone binding globulin so a typical scenario is is a man who has obesity maybe some sexual symptoms the total testosterone uh, is actually slightly low but actually the f- these SHBG level is extremely low. So if you feed it into like a free testosterone calculation, then actually it turns out the free testosterone is actually normal. There was never, there's never an issue. So in certain situations, so where your level of sex hormone globulin is an outlier, so towards the top of the normal range or towards the bottom of the normal range, uh, the measuring your free testosterone or bioavailable testosterone is more useful uh, than, uh, than just relying on your total testosterone value. But actually, if your SHBG level is mid-range, doing the free calculations doesn't add anything more to the to the mix. But you know, more, far more important than that, though, far more important than that is making sure that you're measuring testosterone level under the right circumstances. It's very easy to get a low testosterone level. Have a big meal, have a rubbish night's sleep, be sick, do the blood test in the afternoon or evening. And so, far more important than thinking about free or total testosterone is make sure your sample's done fasted and eight to nine uh, in the morning after you've had a decent night's sleep. And a condition which is probably increasing in prevalence now with, with the increasing prevalence of different comorbidities, such as obesity and diabetes, uh, is, is hypogonadism. And that's, of course, a big interest of yours. So could you explain what hypogonadism uh, actually is? Yeah, it's a shame that there's, there's not a, a, an attractive term for this. I mean, the previous term was even more attractive, which is eunuchism. And people have tried to come out with various euphemisms such as testosterone deficiency, but they just don't stack up. So we're stuck with hypogonadism, hypo Greek for low, gonad, testicle. Uh, So it's a clinical syndrome and it comprises both clinical evidence and laboratory evidence of consistently low testosterone levels and also reduced fertility. Now, I'm not saying that uh, we we certainly do not do sperm counts routinely, in men that we're assessing for hypogonadism. However, 
you know, if there is evidence of a normal sperm count, or if the the man has achieved recent biological fertility, paternity, then actually the chances of them being hypogonadal are actually very low. So it's important that we that we keep fertility there in in the conceptual mix, because actually testosterone is crucial for fertility. So, and actually, this 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 also reflects a duality of testosterone action. So a hormone classically is something that's produced by a gland and then travels out of that gland into the bloodstream and has its effect elsewhere in the body. And that's endocrinology. That, that's the classic endocrine action of testosterone. But actually, there's a thing called a paracrine action. And paracrine is where the hormone is actually acting much closer to where it's being secreted. And the paracrine action of testosterone is in the testes. So there are very high levels of testosterone in the testes, up to 100 times that in the circulation. So you could almost think about that in the circulation, the endocrine testosterone as being that which kind of accidentally leaked out, even though for us it, it seems to be the main function. Within the testes, these very high levels of testosterone are necessary to act on Sertoli cells to enable you to, to make sperm. And you can see how putting in exogenous testosterone into the system, such as if someone's abusing it, it drives up your serum levels, but because it then shuts off your pituitary hormones, the ones that would drive your testes to work, it actually tanks your testosterone level in the testes. And that, of course, causes you to lose your, lose your sperm count, testes to shrink down. And different guidelines and, and organisations across the world have different definitions or clinical thresholds for what is considered to be a low testosterone or, or, or hypogonadism. What is the, the threshold for, for testosterone levels to be considered clinically low or deficient? So that's really interesting. That would be very easy to say in the USA, because in the USA, there are only four testosterone assays, and all of them are cross-referenced to the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. In the UK, we have what may be seven different testosterone assays run by different laboratories. Different laboratories quote different normal ranges. Those normal ranges are not always based on the best quality data. In fact, one thing we do see is that sometimes a lab will invest an enormous amount of effort in the quality control of the testosterone assay, but just accept the normal range that like the kit manufacturer gave them. So this, at the moment, all I can tell you is a low testosterone is one that's below the bottom end of the normal range. What I can say to you is that my society, professional society metrology, is making a lot of effort to begin working with laboratories across the UK to standardize uh, reference ranges uh, such that um, low means low. Low means low in all labs rather than low in some labs and, and not in the others. So as an endocrinologist, when would you consider intervening or, or treating uh, hypogonadism or, or low testosterone? When the low testosterone is due to you being hypogonadal as opposed to caused by you being really sick or to you having had not slept last night or to you having taken anabolics, or to you having had a big meal. So yes, when low testosterone is caused by a clinical syndrome of hypogonadism, as opposed to being an epiphenomenon. Hypogonadism is often described as being a condition where you just don't feel quite right, and you can't pinpoint exactly why it is. You may be feeling very fatigued, restless, suffering from poor sleep or poor sexual function and low libido but it may also cause thristle and weak bones and markers of anemia. So should we consider hypogonadism as a serious condition? 
Yeah, uh, well, it, obviously it, it depends at what stage in life it kicks in. I mean, if you're born with it congenitally, you, you may be born with undescended testes, and uh, very small phallus. You may never go through puberty. So uh, the, the earlier the onset, the more the more severe the, the outcomes. Or you may have hypogonadism that presents much later in life, in, in, into older age. So, yeah, it's, we, we know that if you're hypogonadal, even if we remove any issues of, of sexual function, you will have reduced bone density, you will tend to anemia, you will have reduced muscle mass. And one particular form of hypogonadism, and that's uh, where your testi- primary gonadal failure, where it's your testes that have stopped working, that's associated with a threefold risk of type 2 diabetes. So you, you touched on it there, but what kinds of symptoms should patients or, or men who may be susceptible to low testosterone be looking out for? Well, it's not always symptoms. It's, it's sometimes it's signs and sometimes it's, it's lab tests. So, for instance, on a medical ward, you look at who's got anemia. Older men with anemia have got a high rate of underlying hypogonadism. Or if you're an old middle-aged man with osteoporosis or fracture, they have a much higher rate of hypogonadism than the rest of the population. In uh, younger kids, they're the ones with issues of puberty. In men in the middle, these will be the ones with issues of infertility or sexual dysfunction. And there are different types of hypogonadism, and this can also bring a large degree of confusion as well, because we have what some would call functional hypogonadism and also uh, late onset. Would you be able to describe the different types of hypogonadism and, and what they actually mean or indicate? Yeah, that terminology is, is tricky. So uh, functional hypogonadism implies that there's nothing fundamentally wrong with your pituitary testicular axis. It's just that there is an internal or external stressor that is shutting it down. For instance, low body mass, low body weight. So if you're an athlete who's trained so hard they've lost all their fat mass, your reactive axis will shut down. But that's a form of functional hypogonadism. There's nothing wrong with that axis. If, 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 if you inject them with leptin or they put on weight, it would all uh, recover. So function is kind of recoverable. Another cause would be if you're on taking opiates for pain, they quite commonly shut down the meroproductive axis. But again, that's reversible if you stop the opiate um, painkillers. Any kind of physical or psychological illness uh, results in your axis uh, shutting down. Or we don't know, of course, whether that's, shall we say, if that's favorable or unfavorable. So, for instance, you know, if you had a severe illness, is it a good thing that you're diverting resources from reproduction to survival? Or is it a bad thing? So you're ill, you're losing muscle, you're anemic, you're losing bone, you're losing testosterone, and therefore you're losing even more muscle, red cells and bone. So for those patients, we simply don't know what the... Um, what the long-term effect of, of that is and whether there's any benefit of testosterone treatment. But generally speaking, the safest thing to do is to treat the underlying cause. So, you know, if you're very skinny, put on some weight. If you're extremely obese or have an, an, another underlying illness, treat the underlying illness and the hormone axis will recover. That's what you might call functional hypogonadism. Whereas, so we say regular hypogonadism, you know, your testes aren't working, whatever you do, or your hypothalamus isn't working, and with similar testes, whatever you do. For those who suffer from hypogonadism, there is good news. It is a treatable condition. But what treatment options are available? Well, so first thing to say is, if you're thinking about fertility, 
don't go anywhere near testosterone until you've seen a specialist that said, although testosterone is absolutely crucial for um, sperm production, that's only if you're making your own testosterone. Um, any external testosterone you're putting into the system it is likely to get in the way. But um, let's say you've had, you've been properly diagnosed, you're not seeking uh, fertility, maybe you could your family, then your options in the UK be a, a gel or an injection. And the gel is just uh, applied uh, once a day to clean skin, allowed to dry carefully. And the injection, the long-acting injections every three to six months or short-acting injections every two to four weeks. And what are the benefits of, of, of treatment? Well, so you only benefit from testosterone if you're hypogonadal. And, and unfortunately, worldwide, what we see is that the vast majority of hypogonadal men aren't getting testosterone. And by contrast, a lot of the men who are getting testosterone were never hypergonadal in the first place. They just got sucked into some like marketing thing. Have you got low T? So the benefits of testosterone, if you are hypergonadal, are in terms of um, sexual function, energy levels, muscle, bone, anemia, protecting against, against uh, frailty. And in terms of cardiovascular risk, it's completely neutral. There is the no data that uh, testosterone or the lack of it affects your cardiovascular risk. Later in 2023, we're expecting to see the results of the new Traverse study. It's a study to evaluate the effect of testosterone replacement therapy on the incidence of major adverse cardiovascular events and efficacy measures in hypogonadal men. So does Dr. Quinton think this will help clarify the role of testosterone on cardiovascular risk? Well, uh, yes, but we already have the, the UK study. We already have the testes study. And I'm slightly, um, so the, 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 the traverse study is a randomized control trial, I think $13 million that will report uh, next year. The testes was the UK, and that was a meta-analysis, an individual patient data meta-analysis of every single trial done to, done to date. And that, uh, that cost uh, uh, half a million pounds. And that really showed that there was no signal already and that... Um, in fact, testosterone cardiovascular risk was was, was neutral. So I, I'm reminded slightly of the, of the totally, you know, the, the unfair thing about um, the um, NASA said to have developed a, a billion dollar space pen, whereas Soviet cosmonauts just used the pencil. And actually, that's simply not true. In fact, um, both a pencil is dangerous to use in space in case the lead breaks. And, uh, and the pen was developed uh, privately, not by NASA. And actually, um, both the Soviets and the Americans bought space pens. But it's a nice little analogy, the fact, the fact that actually for half a million dollars, it's arguable whether the Traverse study actually needs to be done. But given the data from the UK testes and meta-analysis, I'll be gobsmacked if Traverse came out with anything very different. And what are the risks for people who are maybe given testosterone treatment when they're not clinically indicated, uh, or for men who are maybe searching for kind of supplements or ways to boost uh, testosterone? Well, so first of all, it'll make you infertile and shrink your testes. Uh, second, it will commit you to a program of medical treatments and regular blood tests that you didn't need that you didn't need doing. And if your monitoring level isn't done properly and your red blood cell count rises too high there's potential risk there of uh, thrombosis or stroke potentially. A much less understood area of testosterone is its relationship with red blood cells and other markers of anemia. And this is a particular interest for Dr. Quinton. So what is the relationship between testosterone and red blood cells? The the male haemoglobin level is about 20 to 30% higher than that of women or of children. And that's totally driven by testosterone. 
quite how testosterone does it is not totally clear. But uh, yes, yeah, so that also means that hemoglobin level is not a bad marker of, of testosterone treatment because obviously whereas levels can fluctuate from day to day, um, hemoglobin levels can be relatively constant. So in a sense, if, if a man's on testosterone treatment and the red cell count hemoglobin level is high, is too high, it almost doesn't matter what testosterone levels you're measuring. You've got to back off. You've got, you need to reduce the dose. Similarly, if a man comes to you with like low testosterone, says, could I be hypogonadal? And again, the hemoglobin level is high normal. You say, well, not really. You'd be very unlikely to be hypogonadal with, with, with a high normal hemoglobin level. And more importantly, on testosterone, you'd be very unlikely to get an abnormally high level. So it's, it's a very useful screen, screening tool as well. It's the single most important thing you can measure, more important uh, than actual testosterone level. And in men with hypogonadism and, and anemia or, or low red blood cell counts, would testosterone treatment be able to uh, reverse uh, those markers? Absolutely, yes, absolutely. And there's studies to show that. And another area of testosterone that is often uh, left out of the conversation as well is the relationship between testosterone and, and bone health. And this is, of course, another particular interest of yours. So what, what is the relationship between testosterone and bones? Okay, so hormones are very important for bone health. We know, for instance, from that's why women after the menopause are at far greater increased risk of fracture uh, because they lose the effect of estrogen to stimulate uh, healthy bone. And the same happens to men who have hypogonadism. But men, normal men have got stronger bones to start with. And that's because men's bones get the double hit. They get the direct effect of testosterone on bone. And what testosterone does, it builds bigger bones and it also gives the thicker outer cortex. But testosterone in men also gets converted to estrogen. And, and so men also get the estrogen effect, which is to build the trabecular bone, which is the, inter the internal architecture of bone. And uh, whereas women only get the estrogen effect, they get, they get estrogen builds a good internal architecture, but the, the cortex, the outer rims aren't as thick and the bones aren't as, uh, aren't as large, which you remove testosterone from the system and uh, your bone density falls off cliff. Similar to markers of anemia, bone health can be a useful screening or diagnostic tool for endocrinologists and, and healthcare professionals to be able to identify whether or not a patient has hypogonadism. And if men present with osteoporosis, a condition characterised by weakened bones, then low levels of testosterone may well be the cause. Uh, so osteoporosis in men is rare. It's rare, it's, it's, whereas in, in women, as they get older, it's almost ubiquitous. So in any man with osteoporosis... You, you can never assume it's just age-related. You must screen for, for a secondary cause. And the most obvious one to screen for is hypogonadism. So really any man with osteoporosis or, or fracture, particularly if they have anemia, the assumption is that they have hypogonadism un unless proven otherwise. So a follow-on question from that would be, does testosterone treatment help with uh, weakened bones? So testosterone will absolutely definitely help with bone density. The difficulty is that there are almost no studies. So the number of men recruited into testosterone studies are far too low for you to be able to get a statistical impact on fracture risk. But actually there are almost, even, even with the classical bone drugs, the bisphosphonates, there's only one um, intravenous zonotric acid which has any fracture outcome data in men. So we have to... But we know that because bone density correlates so closely with fracture risk, we'd have to rely on that surrogate marker. So I can't promise you that testosterone will reduce your fracture risk, but I'd be gobsmacked if it didn't. 
particularly as of course you know by building muscle you know you're increasing postural stability and uh, and strength yeah and, and, and making yourself probably less likely to fall and also many of the bone drugs for instance you can only really use, use them safely for a maximum of five maybe 10 years maximum and, and the question is well then what whereas testosterone is for life and so it really makes sense to to start testosterone early if you are hypogonadal to either prevent osteoporosis or to treat it and then much later in life you can think well and then sh- shall I add in a, a, a bone-specific drug as well? It's very rare in men, even in older men. So osteoporosis, even in older men, is unusual. It's widely prevalent in women because of the female menopause, but because of, uh, only a small portion of, of older men actually undergo something very similar, osteoporosis is much rarer in men. And so what preventative measures can people take to maybe reduce their risk of developing osteoporosis? Well, there's nothing you can do to... So what can you do for your testes? So we know that um, if chronological ageing can affect the testes of a small, a small portion of older men, nothing we can do about it. But just maintaining general good health, keeping uh, your, um, your not, not being too skinny, not being overweight. So we're approaching the end of, of our interview today. And, and a question we ask all guests on the Men's Health Podcast is related to their particular topic. And if there's a particular myth within their expertise or, or fields of interest uh, that they would like to abolish or, or get rid of. So for you as an endocrinologist, if we stick to kind of testosterone, what's one testosterone myth or myth about testosterone that you would like to abolish and get rid of? That it's the hormone of aggression. Yeah, that, that's definitely something we hear quite a lot. And we actually have a, a new article on, on Treated on, on our content hub about uh, the role of testosterone treatment on aggression. So if anybody wants to kind of read more about that, then, then definitely do go to www.treated.org. And finally, before we finish, we've actually uh, had a question uh, from a member of the public. And we, we also do this with, with, with all our, our expert guests. Uh, and he has asked, I am a 55-year-old male who has been prescribed testosterone replacement therapy. However, I am worried about the effects this may have on my cardiovascular risk. Is this a valid concern? Well, assuming that the diagnosis is correct, which unfortunately is not altogether the case in many parts of the UK and across the world, assuming the diagnosis is correct and you do have uh, hypogonadism and the cause for that is known, so you know why I have hypogonadism due to this or that, whatever, then there is no evidence that it's going to that testosterone treatment, if it's properly monitored, is going to increase your cardiovascular risk. However, uh, if you just had a random low testosterone level and someone said, "Oh, you have low T," and put you on testosterone, I would have could not say the same with the same confidence. Thank you, and, and thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening. So that's all for today on the Men's Health Podcast. And a big thank you to Dr. Richard Quinton for joining us today. We're also really excited to announce that Dr. Quinton has recorded a webinar on testosterone, bone health and anemia, which will be live on the Treated Content Hub at www.treated.org. That's www.treted.org. And we hope to see you soon for the next episode of the Men's Health Podcast. Mental health. Obesity. Sexual health, diabetes, supporting men's health and patient care, building knowledge in men's health communities. communities.